0: Admitted. We'll hear argument next in number ninety nine fifty-four, Robert C. Rufo versus the inmates of the Suffolk County Jail, and ninety-one thousand four Thomas C. Rapone versus the inmates of the Suffolk County Jail. Janiak, you may proceed,
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The issue in this case is what standard should be applied to modify uh, to resolve a disputed request to modify a consent decree entered into by a public official defendant. in this case, we submit that a consent decree in such a case should be modified if there has been a change in circumstance since the entry of the consent decree that is adversely adversely affecting public interests or important public institutions, and if the consent decree may be modified to avoid those adverse effects and still vindicate the plaintiff's federally guaranteed rights. In this case, the courts below fail to apply such a standard with two adverse effects. First, the Sheriff of Suffolk County has been compelled, because of the single-selling provision in the consent decree in this case, to transfer inmates from brand-new Suffolk County Jail, which was opened in May of 1990, from that facility into a state correctional system, which is now operating at excess of 170 170 percent of capacity. These inmates are transferred from that brand-new facility into a state system where, ironically, They are often double or triple bunked or, in some instances, compelled to sleep on the floors of those institutions. These transfers are made pursuant to a state statute which requires the agreement and consent of the Sheriff and the Commissioner of Correction to make such transfers. These transfers would not be made by the Sheriff or the Commissioner of Correction except for the consent decree entered in this case. They, the sheriff and the commissioner of correction agree that they are not correctionally sound and have interfered with the operation of the overburdened state correctional system by placing additional pretrial detainees into that system. And in addition, have required Suffolk County to expend an additional $1 million a year in transporting inmates from the Suffolk County jail to these state correctional facilities.
2: Does the record tell us how many of these transfers there are?
1: Uh, I think we could compute. The record doesn't say it directly, uh, Justice, but it would be apparent from simply taking the daily count statistics, which are in the record, uh, and we know what the capacity was at the facility at a given point in time. They number literally at this point in the thousands. Thousands? Yes, it would be thousands. And would
2: the, would the change in the consent decree that you're asking for totally eliminate these transfers?
1: They most probably would totally eliminate it, because what we've asked for is we have in the, in the new facility, which opened in May of 1990, we have 419 cells for male inmates. We've asked to double bunk 197 of them. Given our count statistics, it is highly unlikely we would ever exceed, go beyond the 197 that we intend to double bunk. Uh, That is, our counts typically have been lately run typically run in the area of 480 inmates where we have only 419 cells. There are occasions where we've exceeded 500, so this would most probably result in a complete cure of this problem. Uh, the second adverse effect that keeping this consent decree in place has been on the functioning of the state bail statute. There are occasions where the sheriff does not have a sufficient number of inmates who qualify for transfer to a state correctional facility, because under state law, the only persons who may be transferred are pretrial detainees who have served a prior state felony sentence. If those types of inmates are not available, and the sheriff still has more inmates than the 419 cells at the jail, what he must do is then submit a list of names to a Superior Court judge. And The Superior Court judge then takes individuals who are being held on bail and reduces them to release on recognizance so that they may be transferred to a halfway house facility, which is an insecure facility, whereas the jail is a maximum security facility. Those individuals, the record shows, 10 to 15% of those individuals then walk away from that facility. These persons are persons who at least one judge of the courts in Suffolk County, and in most instances, two judges, have adjudicated as persons for whom the setting of bail is necessary to ensure their appearance at trial. This is a second adverse effect of the court's decision below because it is now interfering with the functioning of the state bail statute and having individuals released on recognizance who would not otherwise Qualify for that status. It is these interferences with the administration of the state correctional system, the county pretrial detention system, and the state bail statute that the sheriff sought to avoid in this case when he proposed to double bunk 197 of the, 400, uh, 197 of the 435 cells at the Suffolk County Jail. The remainder of those cells, uh, 34 of them, are for female detainees. When the sheriff made that proposal, he proposed to relieve in place all of the remaining provisions of the consent decree. The consent decree in this case provided for the construction of a jail which far exceeds constitutional requirements. And although the sheriff proposed a double bunk, none of the other features of the consent decree would be disturbed uh, by the sheriff's proposal for modification. For example, there are outdoor recreation areas which would have been left intact, indoor recreation areas contact visiting areas, Uh, specialized cells would not be double-bunked. Any of the specialized cells in this facility would remain for those purposes, that is, infirmary cells, psychiatric cells, suicide prevention cells. None of the other architectural features or other features of the facility would be altered except for double-bunking 197 of the cells. Furthermore, the sheriff's proposal to the district court would have required that individuals who were double-bunked are only those individuals who would have qualified as uh, eligible for double-bunking under the classification program of the National Sheriff's Association, which in this case was further reviewed and approved by an accredited auditor of the American Correctional Association. And it was this proposal which was denied by the district court and affirmed by the circuit court below.
3: Uh, How did the – how did the – a cell in the new facility compare with the, the old
1: facility? The old facility... If uh, it was
3: going to have two people in it.
1: The smallest size cell in the new facility is... Uh, the minimum size cell in the new facility is 70 square feet. In the old facility, which was also single cell by quarter order, the cells <laughs> were, I believe, 80 square feet or 88 square feet. They were larger. Well, what,
3: what about the... Uh, and you suggest that in the smallest of these cells, that some might be double bunked.
1: In, in some instances, in the small minimum size cells of 70 square feet, it would be double bunking.
3: Double bunk, which would be less commodious than the old. The, old.
1: the cells in the new facility. The cells in the new facility would be, in some instances, would be smaller than the cells in the old facility. However, the new facility differs very significantly in other features of the uh, design of the jail. The new jail, for example, has only small modular units, so that in any unit there's no more than 40 cells stacked in two tiers. And available to the inmates in that unit is a large common day room, so that in the new facility, although some inmates would be double bunked, they would be out of their cells. Yes,
3: but I, I suppose uh, uh, your, uh, the, decree, uh, the court refused to set aside the decree Based on a standard that you attack. Correct. This, this now, let's assume we agreed with you. Uh, nobody got around to, to uh, below to uh, deciding whether or not uh, double bunking in uh, this new facility would be violate the Eighth Amendment.
1: That's, the, the judge below said he did not have to reach any issues and exactly. no findings.
3: What if we agreed with you, wouldn't we... Just remand to have the Eighth Amendment issue fleshed out
1: in the floor below? I think perhaps the most appropriate result then would be to remand to apply a new standard to make the determination of whether double bunking this particular facility would meet constitutional standards.
4: Mr. Janiak, do you plan to discuss with us the standard employed below and the standard that you think is applicable?
1: Yes, Justice O'Connor. Below, what the district court judge did was first apply the standard in SWIFT. After having found that this case did not meet the standard in SWIFT, the district court judge then purported to apply what he said was a flexible standard. But we submit that, in fact, what the judge applied was a new standard, which is quite unlike both the standard that we've urged on this court and unlike the standard that's been applied uh, in the various circuit boards. Does
4: does Rule 60B-5 have anything to do with the uh, authority of the court to consider a modification?
1: I think the issue would be, given the language of that rule, uh, does what... Does the
4: rule apply? Yes. So the question is whether it's equitable?
1: I think you the question see. is, what does equitable mean in this mm-hmm. particular kind of case? And the district court judge first look to the Swift case in answering that, which I submit is not the proper standard, given this court's decision in the Dowell case particularly, and then went on to apply what he said was, quote, a flexible standard. But I submit that what he in fact did in that case was quite different both from the standard that we have urged on this court and quite different from what any of the circuit courts have done who have spoken of a flexible standard
4: does a consent decree have any any contractual aspects to it that are the source of special concern?
1: I think that a consent decree has a contractual aspect to it, but it should not be considered a contract. I think, at least since this, uh, Justice Cardozo's decision in the Swift case, uh, He says that although the consent decree is an order of the court and therefore is subject to later modification under the right circumstance, leaving open the question of what that would be given the nature of this case, with respect to there being some consensual aspect to it, I think that's accommodated by the standard that we've urged on this court, because because what we have said is that there must be a change in circumstance producing an adverse effect. And by saying that there must be a change in circumstance and that must be shown, a public official defendant cannot then go back and simply say, I've changed my mind. So I think that our proposal accommodates the consensual aspect of consent decrees.
2: Except
5: would you agree that at the outset, a trial court has the authority to impose on the state by a consent decree an obligation that's greater than the Constitution commands?
1: I think given this court's holding in the Local 93 case, that is probably the correct, that they would have... If the parties agree to it, and it goes beyond what the court could have ordered after trial, it may be entered as a consent decree. I think that the issue presented in this case is a different issue, which is, given that that has happened, what what is the standard to be applied later, when the parties come back before the court and there's a disputed request to modify a consent decree? Would it be an
5: abuse of the discretion for the district court to say, I'll do no more than the constitutional minimum?
1: I think that. In fact, what the court would be required to do is to look to the underlying federal law, which occasioned the court's original intervention. I
5: mean at the outset of the decree. Suppose the the court at the outset of the decree said, I will enter no decree that exceeds the constitutional um, I
1: believe that the court would have that discretion.
3: It would be abuse of discretion to... uh, enter a decree that would order a state to do more than the Constitution required, whether consent or not. What do you think of that?
1: Well, I think that's a tough question, given this Court's (laughs) and which I'm sure it's why it was asked, Justice White. I think that's a difficult question, given on my understanding of this Court's decision in Local 93, where where there was a decree entered, which went beyond what the Court could have ordered in that case. Was that a
0: constitutional case?
1: That was not a constitutional case. That was a Title VII case. Uh, It may be that a constitutional case presents a somewhat different issue. What we've uh, urged...
3: uh, 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 I suppose a district court can, uh, if he thinks there's really a a constitutional violation involved, uh, can uh, spell out what he thinks might be an appropriate remedy, uh, and especially if it's consented to, he could enter the order. But it still has to be, uh, at root, a constitutional violation he's purporting to enter an order about.
1: That's correct. There has to be some federal violation of, of the federal constitution or federal law, which brought the parties before the court initially. Then the question is, does the consent decree contain remedies go beyond the minima, Go beyond what is required in order to vindicate those federal interests? Can rights? I ask you a
2: question about your standard on the changed circumstances? In your view, must those changed circumstances be unforeseen? Changed circumstances?
1: I think my in my view, they don't have to be foreseeable. It'd be
2: all right if everybody could predict the increase in prison population, and then and they still you could still rely on that increase to do it. That's critical to your case, I guess, because here the district judge found the circumstances were not unforeseen, didn't he?
1: Well, what the district court judge did here, Justice Stevens, he looked, he discussed the issue of foreseeability only in the context of applying the SWIFT standard, and then I think discussed, applied a standard which is really different than any foreseeability standard to which any public official should be held, because what he did is he conceded initially that the phenomenon of increases in jail and prison populations are unpredictable. Having conceded that he was dealing with an unpredictable phenomenon, he then spoke of what was a, what he found to be an apparent trend looking back in April of 1990 to, 19, to 1985, and on that basis said, well, it wasn't unforeseen. That seems to me to be a very t- difficult and tight standard to hold any public official to. You tell me that you're going to talk about apparent trends with respect to unpredictable phenomena, and if you don't foresee this coming, then I'm going to uh, hold you to the original agreement.
2: It seems to me your standard has the same problem in it, because uh, supposing you get the relief that you asked for, and then the prison population continues to grow, as it mo- no doubt will, so many people will be put in jail, and you now come back and say, we need another hundred double cells, wouldn't, wouldn't they have to give it to you?
0: You may answer, yeah.
1: I, that is, that any time, if there was a change in circumstance... Uh, which led to a further increase. Whether foreseen
2: or unforeseen.
1: Foreseen or unforeseen. Then you would have to make a showing that that was a change in circumstance and had an adverse effect. But you would also always have to show that the modification that's requested would ensure that the constitutional rights are being protected.
0: Thank you, Mr. Janiak. Uh, We'll hear now from you, Mr. Montgomery.
6: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Commissioner of Corrections agrees with the Sheriff that the District Court should have modified the consent decree due to changed circumstances, but we maintain that there is another, more fundamental basis for reversal of the District Court. We submit that with the closing of the old jail and the opening of the new jail, it was no longer appropriate for the District Court to continue to exercise equitable authority over double selling under the consent decree. The new facility contained no vestiges, if you will, of the unconstitutional conditions at the old jail, and it eliminated any risk of recurrence of the conditions that offended the 14th Amendment. That being so, under the general equitable principles applied by this Court most recently in Board of Education versus Dowell last term, Uh, We maintain that the district court should have concluded that the consent decree's restrictions on double bunking could have no further prospective application under Rule 60B-5. The federal court had played its role. It had succeeded in fully protecting constitutional values, and the time to end judicial tutelage over this jail had come to an end.
3: If they wanted to... uh have a question about the – present a question about the new jail. They should start a new lawsuit.
7: That's exactly right. You're, you're saying that once the consent decree has been complied with for any period of time, that ends uh, the power of the court to enforce that decree except insofar as a change may fall below constitutional standards. Is that fair to say?
6: Your Honor, what we're saying is that once the underlying constitutional violations have been cured – and are unlikely to recur at that point, which we concede is difficult to define uh, in many cases, the power of the court ends no matter what the consent decree says
7: then then under those circ- un- under your rule, there doesn 't have to be any changed circumstance. Uh, the constitutional violation is remedied, and you can walk back into court the next morning and say well it 's true we promised by the consent decree to do something more than the Constitution requires, uh, but we now are under no obligation to do so, and the court can 't make us do it that reads the that reads the consensual aspect of the consent decree in effect right out of it doesn 't it
6: Your Honor, we really make here in this case two arguments we agree with the sheriff that there are circumstances when the court must apply equitable principles to determine whether a modification is appropriate because of changed circumstances. But we speak here on the facts of this case of the absolute limits that we think this Court should impose on the Court's equitable authority.
7: But you're saying to the extent that there is an attempt to enforce a consent decree which goes beyond constitutional minima, uh, equitable considerations really are irrelevant.
6: We do not go that far, Your Honor. Um, if the parties agree to a consent decree that is entered by the court which contains an element, for example, in this case, double bunking, which purportedly exceeds constitutional standards. We read Local 93 to permit the court to enter such a consent decree without a searching inquiry into whether every single provision in the decree falls within constitutional standards. Until there are changed circumstances, there is no basis for modification. Beyond that, there is no basis in our view for the argument we make here, that is, that the equitable authority of the court has come to an end until the constitutional violations that led to the decree have been cured and a showing can be made that they are unlikely to recur. you can be more
3: specific, and you were, that the decree uh, had to do with the old jail.
6: That's exactly right, Your Honor.
3: And the old jail's closed. That's right. And uh, so the decree is... Is just over. You've got a new jail that's never been adjudicated.
6: The original consent decree, however, Your Honor, did contemplate the construction of a yes. new jail. Indeed, the consent decree and its hundreds of pages of attachments were the architectural plan yes. for the new jail. But we agree that once the new jail is built, that the essence of the dispute has been resolved. And all of the constitution. Well, it isn't,
3: it isn't if... Uh, if the uh, consent decree or the court uh, thought that there was a per se rule against double bunking in any prison.
6: That's true, and to the extent that the court thought that.
3: And uh, if if that element was in the decree, uh, why, there's been a changed condition, namely that the law has been changed. If it ever was that law, the law has been changed.
6: We agree with that, Your Honor. Uh, In this particular case, however, the original consent decree does not contain any provision which suggests that the court believed there was a per se right to a single cell.
8: Mr. Montgomery, I I don't don't really understand what you're saying. This wasn't a suit against the jail. It was a a suit against uh, against the government, and and the government's still there. I mean, why say it's a suit? The jail wasn't being sued. Uh, The government was being sued. The government had been doing something that was unconstitutional. That was the basis of the suit. And these people say the government is still doing something that is unconstitutional. What difference does it make whether it's doing it in one building or another building?
6: Your Honor, the question is the context on which the assessment is made of whether there is an, uh, some violation of the law that occurs. We maintain that the court below ought not to address the double-selling question under the consent decree because, as I've said, the limits of the court's equitable authority had come to an end but rather as a fresh complaint. In this case, the inmates complaint about the sheriff's plan to double cell in the future is like the student reassignment plan in Dowell. Student reassignment was an integral part of the original order that had been entered uh, by the court in Dowell. But what this court did is it drew a line and it said that if the plaintiffs cannot show that there are remaining vestiges de jure discrimination and cannot show that there is no uh, threat of recurrence, then, or excuse me, if they can show that, then the student reassignment plan can be challenged only under a fresh complaint. What we say here is not that the plaintiff should be deprived of an opportunity to challenge double selling at the new jail, but that they should do so only on a fresh complaint and under the standards of the 14th Amendment.
0: Well, what if, what if in the showing in the, for the original decree, Mr. Montgomery, I mean, it was shown that this sheriff had been sheriff of three or four different jails, and in every one of them he double-selled? Uh, it, it seems to me that, that the court could then say, uh, in, indeed, it isn't just the building in which he's in, he, he just has a propensity to double-sell people. He's apt to do so in the new building, too.
6: If the court had believed in 1973, when it entered its original decision after trial, that single selling was per se a violation of the Constitution, uh, and such a sheriff were a party to the case, then I would agree with Your Honor's suggestion that it would be difficult to show that there was not a likelihood of recurrence. But if the court looks at Judge Garrity's decision in 1973, it, be, it is clear that Judge Garrity was. Uh, very complimentary of the conduct of the public officials in this case, and that he viewed the root cause of the constitutional problems here to be the building. Mm -hmm. And he sought to bring about a set of circumstances via his order to close the jail that would replace that building.
8: Your answer to the Chief Justice assumes that uh, courts can take account of uh, character evidence, even though uh, juries may may not be able to. Uh, But we'll... I but stu- let it go.
6: I suppose that's true, Your Honor. But, but it is the case, uh, Your Honor, that uh, this record is frankly littered with, with compliments by the district court. for the And
5: under, the under your view, what are, what are the key differences between a consent decree and a judgment uh, after litigation?
6: For purposes of the argument that we make concerning the limits of the court's authority, there is no difference at all. Uh, in our view. the uh, Do do
5: consent decrees serve an important function uh, in our litigation and adversary system?
6: They serve a very important function, but consent, Your Honor, does not expand, we do not believe, the equitable power of the court. With respect to the standard modification context, applying principles under Rule 60b-5, consent, we believe, may very well make a difference And it is a consideration that the court can take into account. Well, does the court
5: have any greater authority uh, to enter relief pursuant to a consent decree than pursuant to a litigated judgment?
6: Under Local 93, there certainly is an argument to be made that there is some greater authority under a consent decree to enter relief. Um, On the other hand, we think there is no suggestion in this Court's treatment of general equitable principles as they apply to both litigated and consent decrees that would permit the Court to expand its ultimate authority. There is no difference, for example, between the equitable principles that the Court applied in Dowell, which involved a litigated decree, and Pasadena versus Spangler, which involved a consent decree. And we think to permit the parties to expand the ultimate power of the Court by virtue of consent Runs counter to the principle that the court, I believe, has repeatedly reaffirmed that the parties may not, by consent, uh, purchase the continuing equitable
2: power of the court. Mr. Montgomery, on your theory that the power of the court terminated when the new facility was built, what uh, case in this this court most strongly supports your uh, suggestion? Or is this a brand new theory that we should adopt?
7: No, I
6: believe Dowell most strongly supports our position. As I said in response to Justice Kennedy's question, we see no difference uh, between consent decrees uh, and litigated decrees. And in Dowell, the court concluded that the limits of enforceability, assuming that the problems had been cured, the limits of enforceability had been reached. That was the end of the court's power. And any new problems uh, had to be tested under a fresh complaint, as I I said earlier. And we believe that that uh, approach uh, applies fully here. Uh, The desegregation context is is one in which the Court has had the most sustained opportunity over the last uh, 20, 30 years to develop the application of equitable principles, and we believe uh, that they apply fully here. Um, We believe that under these circumstances, this is a case for the Court to confirm in a context other than desegregation that judicial orders, including consent decrees against local officials, are not intended to operate in perpetuity. We are asking the court here to make it clear that when the past violations are permanently cured, and in this case a $54 million building permanently cured the violations that led to so many years of litigation, that local officials will now be held accountable uh, not to the federal courts, but to the democratic process within their communities. This consent decree gives this jail a special status. And now that the violations have been cured, all of the old violations, the connection, the critical connection between the violation that led to the decree and the remedy has become unhinged. And when that happens, the decree takes on a life of its own. And we suggest that that is inappropriate. And that is a proposition that the Court should not permit to stand. Uh, We respectfully request that the Court remand this case to the District Court with instructions to modify the decree. I would be glad to answer any further questions.
0: Thank you, Mr. Montgomery. I thank the Court. Uh, Mr. Stern, we'll hear now from you.
9: Mr. Chief Justice, (coughs) and may it please the Court. The question presented is, what standard should have governed Judge Keaton's exercise of discretion when he considered a 1989 motion to modify an order requiring single occupancy, which had been entered in 1979 and then modified and reaffirmed explicitly in 1985? The 1979 consent decree was entered after this case had been pending since 1971 after a 1973 finding of violation and an order to close the jail. After five years a complete impasse had been developed and no remedy had been supplied or was even proposed uh, by the defendants. The question was then how to get out of this impasse and the answer that was supplied by the First Circuit was that this jail at long last will have to close unless the defendants are prepared to commit in an enforceable way to the specifics of a plan, that is, a jail, a site, specific criteria, and so forth. And out of that came the plan which they submitted in October of 1978, and which was approved and which became the consent decree of 1979, which required single occupancy. And then again, in April of 1985, that, the, a new order was entered, which was entered in light of the fact that the population had been rising and was likely to continue to rise. And it therefore permitted the defendants to build a new facility of any size without any court permission, provided explicitly that single occupancy is maintained under the design for the new facility. So this Consent Decree and its modification had everything to do with what would be in the new facility. We say that there must be a showing of inequity beyond collateral attack on the merits. This is required by Rule 60b-5 and by the policy of encouraging settlements. And settlements are important, and not only in order to preserve judicial resources, Consent decrees provide better relief, it's more finely tuned, it's more sensitive to the interests of plaintiffs, and more deferential to the interests of defendants, and particularly state and local governments and executive agencies. And I submit to Your Honor that a very persuasive uh, informational brief is that supplied by the correctional, former correctional officials as amici.
4: Mr. Stern, do you, do you agree with the application of the so-called SWIFT standard by the lower court in looking at this question?
9: We, uh, yes, we have no problem with the, SWIFT, with the SWIFT standard, but our position is...
4: Well, I might have a problem yes, with it. I understand because that. But our position <laughs> I'm is... I'm not sure that's, that's the standard that ought to be applied in cases like this.
9: Well, perhaps not. But in any event, we agree with the Solicitor General that there must, in any event, be some minimum threshold standard, which is enough to make a consent decree worth entering. Uh, If the if the parties do not get some benefit of the bargain, if they're not guaranteed something beyond relitigation in the future, uh, then nobody will enter a consent decree. And we think that if the court adopts a standard which has some minimum threshold showing such as that, then it makes no difference in this case whether the SWIFT standard is applied or this other standard. In fact, Judge Keaton applied uh, both the SWIFT standard and the su- standard that was uh, uh, suggested by the sheriff at that time, the uh, commission. Would
0: it be fair to say that he applied the second standard somewhat perfunctorily, you know, in about one sentence... Uh,
9: well, I think it was a little more than one sentence, Your Honour, and I think that he got to the uh, and he dealt with what is the central and most important part of the of the standard, at least as advocated by the Solicitor General and has, and as applied by other courts and other circuits. And that and that's what we think is the first component of any uh, standard: is what were the basic purposes of the decree. Uh, a proposed modification must be on account of changed circumstances and in accord with the principal purposes of the original decree. The question is, what was agreed to? Is this really a new circumstance, or is this something that was contemplated all along? If the parties in the consent decree agree that if X happens, then you shall do Y, well then if X ultimately happens, it can't possibly, that can't possibly supply a reason for getting out of the obligation.
8: Uh, do you agree that um, uh, a consent decree uh, cannot go beyond what the Court has power to, argue, to order without the consent decree?
9: No, I do not agree with that. I it think can I
8: go agree. beyond remedying the constitutional violations.
9: I believe that's what Local 93 uh, established. There were four criteria had to be within the subject matter jurisdiction of the court, had to be within the scope of the pleadings, it had to serve the objecti- objecti- objectives of the underlying law, and it had to be not affirmatively prohibited by uh, federal law. And I would submit that this case is actually much stronger than local 95. What What's the
8: authority of a court to do that, to order something that is not necessary to prevent a violation of law?
9: Well, it's the... Just, basic, the agree- just the
8: agreement of the parties?
9: I would say so, as long as it's within the subject matter jurisdiction of the court.
8: So the court conv- converts a private contract into a, a rule of law?
9: I suppose you could put it that way, but that is what a consent decree is all about, although it's not completely a private contract, because since it is also an order, it isn't immutable. There is always an escape hatch where a party can get out for... Uh, for real need, and that's why Rule 60b applies. And that Rule 60b says if it's inequitable, uh, you can get out of it. The that.
3: Judge says to the uh, to the parties when uh, they come into this consent decree, the the uh, judge says to the plaintiff, look, I would never enter an order like this. Uh, in a, if we litigated this case and you won, I wouldn't enter this order. And uh, <clears throat> uh, should he just uh, nevertheless enter the consent decree?
9: Well I suppose uh, there are a number of things I would respond to that. First of all in a way that's Local 93 because in Local 93 the statute said specifically that if this case is tried this relief cannot be entered. That's what Congress said and this court nonetheless said as a matter of consent uh, consent decree you can enter it. Secondly this case does not present the issue of whether If Judge Keaton, in his discretion, declined to enter that decree, whether he would be obliged to do it, uh, this consent decree was uh, entered, and now the issue is, uh, is it enforceable? And thirdly, this case, in in such a real way, comes out of the... uh, The uh,
3: You say that the double-selling provision should be enforced, even though double-selling, per se, is not necessarily uh,
9: unconstitutional. We say it is not necessarily. We agree that there is no per se rule. Yes. We think it would But be uh, nevertheless, the consent
3: decree should be enforced without even considering whether or not the conditions in the new jail are unconstitutional.
9: Your Honor, please, this was, is that, this was that's the right, isn't yes, it? Right? Yes, it is. Yeah. And that's for, for a number of reasons. First of all, was that was the deal. Bell v. Wolfish was pending in this court at the very moment that we signed that consent decree. Everybody but didn't know
3: who was going to win.
9: Of course. That was exactly the point. Everybody decided to finesse. Everybody decided to hedge their bets and make this deal. And Bell was decided. Seven days after, uh, after the consent decree was entered, Bell was decided. Nobody did anything about it. And indeed, six years later, we reaffirmed. The uh, consent decree and provided for single cell occupancy way after Bell was decided, uh, so you know, that was completely understood at the time. Sue them
8: for breach of contract. I mean, can can you get some monetary? I mean, if, if your grievance is that is that they've welched on the deal, uh, then uh, uh, you must have some uh, contractual remedy. But I mean, it, it's a little different saying that the that the power and the force of the government must be invoked because there's been a breach of contract.
9: Well, you know, this is, uh, uh, if I might say so, this is an even stronger case uh, than Local 93, because at least here, unlike Local 93, this was a very disputable issue. Why can't parties settle disputable issues? And if the answer to it is they can settle disputable issues, then the, the answer to that must be it must be possible to enforce it at a later time. But I think one can say that
0: if you're talking about a judgment for damages in a settlement, uh, no difficulty arises there, it's over and done with. But if you're talking about an injunctive decree where the federal court is involved year after year, uh, surely somewhat different considerations prevail, don't you think?
9: That is exactly why 60, Rule 60b-5 provides the leeway for defendants to get out of it in a, in a substantial change of circumstances. But I don't think, uh, unless the court is prepared to hold that one cannot settle legal issues in equitable cases where the issue is whether there shall be an injunction, then I don't think you can say that a federal court can never enforce a decree which is arguably greater than the Constitution requires. If you were to hold that, that would mean that there would be no end to litigation in any consent decree. What, what, Every consent decree would
0: what, be... What, what, what if, in this case, uh, the precise same, uh, uh, rather a different consent decree had been entered, saying that, uh, generally speaking, double selling is okay, and Bell against Wolfish and Rhodes against Chapman had come out differently in this court, so that there is now a per se rule against doubles... Could the state insist that it can re- continue to run the jail under under that decree?
9: I'm not sure I understand. If if the consent decree had provided for well, a double supposing sell-
0: that the, the the consent decree had said no problem with double ju- double selling as a general rule, and then Bell versus Wolfish and Rhodes against Chapman are decided by this court the opposite way than they were, I see. Per rule against double. Can the state insist? under the consent decree that it, it will continue to double sell?
9: Well, I think you then might have the System Fed- Federation case.
3: Well, that's
0: a deal. It's a deal. It's though.
9: a deal. Well, the System Federation case held that when the result that was part of the consent decree, it turns out to be affirmatively contrary to federal law. When the result, uh, System Federation, the consent decree said union shops are illegal. Then Congress passes it. Well, part
3: a, of the federal law is that you don't bind us You don't tell, tell a state how to run its business unless they're trying to run it contrary to the Constitution.
9: Well, that's certainly the basis for jurisdiction. But then the question is, when can one settle a case?
2: Mr. Stern, isn't your answer to the Chief Justice that the particular plaintiffs in the case would be bound, but that wouldn't bind the next group of inmates who came in, because they certainly wouldn't be bound by a consent decree to which they are not a party?
9: Well, I do think that um, there is parity, and and uh, that yeah. both sides are bound uh, so the, in this the, class the, action. But the, I the think plaint- that the
0: plaintiffs in that case uh, would be bound to not to take the benefit of uh, the uh, our hypothetical rule that single, double selling is prohibited. Uh, do, you, do you agree to that?
9: I I think the question is whether the whether system federation would apply, whether there's a difference because this court has now held that something is illegal. That hasn't happened in this case. No, but isn't the difference
7: that they could waive the illegality, but it does not follow from that that they can, by an agreement, enlarge the constitutional jurisdiction of the court. I mean, the one doesn't follow from the other, even if you assume that that the particular inmates can waive the, the... Uh, consequently declared illegality, doesn't follow from that that they can enlarge the constitutional jurisdiction of the court by an agreement.
9: We certainly haven't argued and don't argue that anything can be done to enlarge the jurisdiction of the court, and I don't think that the defendants have ever said that there is no jurisdiction in this case within the meaning of subject matter jurisdiction. So I come back to the question of whether if you have an issue, and after all, even under Bell, the issue is always whether it's, it's to, certain, to a certain degree a question of the totality of the circumstances.
8: You know what we mean by enlarging the jurisdiction of the court, Mr. Stern. Well, we, 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 we mean letting the court do something it does not have power to do, to issue a decree that it is not, not independently empowered to issue, Well, apart, apart from this, this contract that the parties have.
9: I what do think it? that a court
8: and, and your does have you, such power, it has it.
9: but at least... It has such power when it's a disputable issue at the time the court approaches it, when it's something that is negotiable, something that could go either way. And that's really what we had here, something that could go either way.
2: Well, Mr. Stern, was there any constitutional violation proved in this case other than the double selling?
9: Oh, yes, Your Honor. This was a...
2: So the court had the power to fashion a remedy for a constitutional violation that was proved. Did anybody question the jurisdiction of the court to enter the decree they entered?
9: No one questioned the jurisdiction at the the beginning or the middle or the end or any time during this uh, uh, 20-year episode. And as I've said, it became essential to find a means of providing a remedy for the original unconstitutionality, the old jail. And that means was to allow the defendants to continue the use of the old facility, which they did for another 10 years, while they constructed a new facility according to specific criteria.
5: The mechanism for that solution as a practical matter really had to be a consent decree, didn't it? As as a practical matter, uh, these parties couldn't have gone into the realm of private contracts and had a contract because state law provisions were, were, were simply too restrictive, I take it, gift of public funds, binding subsequent legislatures, and so forth.
9: I agree with you, you Ron. I couldn't think of it. All right.
5: I I couldn't think of it either. And therefore, uh, it it seems to me that the contract analogy does not help you very much. This wasn't a case of parties who had a choice of substituting the private contractual mechanism for the court mechanism. The court mechanism was all they had. And if that's so, then it must be um, uh, governed by rules that are sui generis to that process, it seems to me.
9: Perhaps so. We're not saying that we should take the law of contract and simply import it. But certainly, in considering how we look at consent decrees and do we look at them differently than adjudicated decrees, we certainly will look to contract law for some of the basic principles. And the most basic principle of all is the reason people enter into these arrangements is because they expect the court eventually to enforce their settled expectations. Mr. Stern, how
8: much do you need to, to, to assure that? You, you said a moment ago that you're not taking the position, apparently, I don't think you are, that the court can put into the decree something that is clearly beyond its remedial power. You said at least where it's arguably within the immediate That's, that's really all you're grasping for. Well,
9: right? that's all I need in this case. That's all
8: you need in this case. Uh, wouldn't it be enough to assure the... Uh, the uh, Validity of of consent decrees, or at least the worthwhileness of entering into them. If, once the decree is entered, the burden is on the party who who seeks to overturn the decree to show that it is not a violation of the Constitution to violate the decree, although normally the burden is on the party showing the constitutional violation to prove it. Once you enter a decree, if you want to get out of it, the burden is on you to show that it is not a constitutional violation to do what you want to do in violation of the, of the decree. Wouldn't that make it worthwhile to no, enter into the No, it wouldn't. Because
9: once the consent decree is, is negotiated and entered, or the, first of all, in the process of negotiation, there are mutual trade-offs. It's a process of settlement. And they give up something, we give up something. They give up something else, we give up something, up something else. Most of these are very complicated things with many mutually independent trade-offs. Second, on close
8: questions of law as you're saying well some it, of them may things be... have to be arguably within the court's jurisdiction and once you enter the consent decree you have it locked to this extent that the burden of proof would suddenly shift to the other side to show that it's not a violation of the law
9: some points are close questions of the law but other points are not you might give up one thing in return for another we gave up another 10 years Of confinement in the old jail in return for some form, for exactly this, for a consent decree which laid out specifically what it would have, and most importantly within it, most importantly, and this was clear all the way along, single occupancy. That's what we wanted most of all. That's what Judge Garrity said was most important, what he said they were unequivocally. committed to
8: well and and if it were still a close question and if we can if we put the burden on the side trying to uh, trying to break the consent decree to show that double occupancy is not a violation of the Constitution that'd normally be hard to show if it was still a close question but it's no longer even a close question it is now absolutely clear that in and of itself it is not a
9: violation it would still mean And of course, the burden is always on the movement. I mean, that isn't really any different than what the defendants are suggesting. They're saying we'll take the burden on that point. The movement always has the burden. But if you allowed them to collaterally attack the decree, then what would happen is in each and every decree, every defendant would move to Vacate the decree, modify it every time they thought they had grounds, to uh, arguable grounds to undo it, and you would litigate these things and relitigate them forever. And ultimately, I don't think anybody would would uh, go into them because, after all, as a plaintiff's attorney, why would I give the other side the right to blow the whistle at any time and say, you know, whatever time and turf they choose? Now we want to litigate I'd rather litigate it at the at the initial time. <clears throat> Therefore, I think that it has to be more than collateral attack. Uh, and, and, uh, and it has to be a purpose, and that's what Judge Keaton found, and that's what the Solicitor General agreed with. Uh, and secondly, there has to be some showing of need as well. There has to be a nexus between the supposed new circumstance and this, the impracticability of complying with a decree, a temporary problem should not be a reason to do away with the decree altogether to illustrate in this case. The sheriff in the old jail had a capacity of 342 cells, and for years he made this work, even as the population went went up and up and up. And now when we have the new jail, the new jail opens with a new capacity of, of 71 additional cells. I would submit to the court that there's absolutely no showing on the basis of that record that there was any need at all to double bunk on this record. Now, there is no other record, no better record. We don't know exactly what's been happening on this record in the last year and a half for precisely the reason that the sheriff refused to try it out. Another one of the criteria that a court must impose as part of the showing of equity, again suggested by us and by the Solicitor General, is he must try in good faith to comply with the decree. He didn't want to try at all. He went into the court. So his record has to do with what happened in the old jail prior to the time he had this enormous increase in capacity. We say that there's no showing in the short term and much less is there showing in the long term. In 1984, when the the population was going up, the sheriff didn't go to the federal judge then and and say, I need to have double occupancy. He went over to the state court and said, I need to have a bigger jail because I'm obliged to have single occupancy in in the jail. So over the long term, the state court has held that the sheriff is entitled to have a jail of sufficient capacity to comply with the federal order requiring single occupancy. So there's no showing of need uh, on this. Is
5: there point. any length or term of years on this consent decree?
9: No, there isn't. Uh, as long until. Well, against
5: perpetuity or something?
9: Well, until a, there is a change of circumstance, if there is one, but at least, at least beyond the day the jail is supposed to open its doors. You know, at least try it out. That's all we're saying, and that's all Judge Keaton said. Try it out. Certainly, if they tried it out and they had a problem, if there really were transfers that are problematic and so forth, he could then come back and say, this is what the problems were. But he didn't even want to do that.
3: Of course, all the government has to do is build another jail to to keep up with the prisoner population.
9: That's certainly true over the long term.
3: Which is what happened... uh because of the
9: case that was brought. That's right, Your Honor. I should also add that certainly as a temporary matter, we agree. We're not saying that if there's some temporary emergency that is totally unforeseen that they can't do anything about, uh, if, if half the jail were to burn and all of a sudden they would have half the capacity, we're not saying that they couldn't go in and get a modification in order to double bunk until they could deal with this <clears throat> on a more permanent basis. This was the... Duran case decided by the Seventh Circuit and Judge Posner, where the holding was basically uh, temporary, temporarily yes, but temporarily only. Uh, and we, uh, we agree with that. I should add uh, on this question of need, the real contention of the sheriff, which he makes rather forthrightly in his reply brief, is that what he needs and what he wants is the option to double sell the option to double g- sell if at some point in the future, in his sole discretion, he should decide he needs to do. And I think there's where the fundamental fallacy is between the petitioner's position and our, in, in their position. They mix up the question of the deference to be paid to discretion on the merits as opposed to the discretion to be exercised, uh, official discretion exercised on the question of whether to overthrow a decree. Certainly, on the merits, we have to. The federal court is bound to defer to official discretions. There are many problems to be solved and many fine lines to be drawn, and by and large, it's not up to a federal court to draw those lines. But when you have a consent decree and the official decides, "I will exercise my discretion to do it this way or draw the line that way." and then you get into a consent decree and there are mutual undertakings and it's relied upon in various ways and it goes on for years, at that point, the federal court can't just say, all right, defer to his discretion. At that point, the federal court has to say, look, is there a legitimate need for this? Because if there is not a legitimate need, if the party isn't even willing to try it out, then essentially what the party has is a unilateral veto over this consent decree and nobody would ever. uh, agree with those. Another requirement is that the motion be timely. The sheriff waited. He knew that the, jail, the population was going up. Rather than go and try to enlarge the jail as he had before, he just sat on it, waited until the design was literally in concrete. Now this design was designed specifically, it was specifically premised on single occupancy. The whole idea was to preserve privacy while maintaining safety. The way he did it was single occupancy and put the cells in an isolated fashion so they cannot be maintained under constant surveillance. So somebody isn't always looking in the door and watching you go to the bathroom. That was basically what the idea was. We can have it both ways. Now, if the sheriff had moved
8: at a time... was that constitutionally required, too? I mean, it's a nice idea, well, but 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 can, can you can you require a state to do it as a matter of federal law? Make it a constitutional requirement by just agreeing to do it,
9: Justice Scalia. Perhaps not a constitutional requirement, but the issue presented on in this case as a matter of constitutional law is whether, having drawn the lines that way, having made a jail that is built in that way having therefore created a situation where it will be positively dangerous to put people in double uh, bunk double people in cells that are isolated and difficult to observe, would that be consti- unconstitutional? And that's the position we think the defendants have put us in by waiting all that time to say, I want to change the plan. If they had done it earlier, and you can look at page 261 of the Appendix Look at the diagram of the viewing limits from the guard station, and you'll see exactly what I mean about how this jail is configured in a very unique way, creating very serious uh, damage to our clients simply by the way they did it. We could have changed it. We could have made it bigger. We could have made the cells bigger. We could have uh, designed it in a different way in changing the consent decree if there were grounds to do it. Finally, if I just might say, I find it somewhat ironic that the uh, federal courts, in this case, would be criticized as somehow anti-federalist. In this case, this case is a model of how to implement relief in a federal system. The federal courts never imposed a remedy on the defendants. The federal court never said how many to hold, how many to release. Judge Keaton even made his order automatically amendable if there was a change of an order in the uh, Supreme Judicial Court. No one can say Judge Keaton was not sensitive and cautious about the interests of the defendants. All he did was say, I'm not going to let you out of an obligation which you undertook and which you reaffirmed and which was central to the case without good reason. All he says was, you have to try it. And therefore, he should be affirmed. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Stern. The case is submitted. The
2: court is now adjourned until Tuesday next. At 10 o'clock.